Thanks for listening. Learn more about our church and support by giving to the Mission of the Oaks at www.theoakscommunitychurch.org. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate, now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going... Another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, the man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This is the word of the Lord. Can you pray with me real quick? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for um, this example here in John 5 of Jesus healing this man. Uh, Father, we pray for Pastor Matt this morning as he prepares to uh, preach and bring us the word. We pray that your spirit would work through him. Uh, it would reveal in us, Lord, ways in which we are not um, trusting you, believing in your grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Peace be with you. I had a roommate in college, and he broke up with his girlfriend, and she took it really hard, because that's what happens sometimes. And soon after this, she came to us, and she explained that she had recently received an email from strange, some strange person, a strange man. Um, professing his attraction and love for her. Uh, and she was creeped out by the email. He didn't give his name. We didn't know who it was. We shared our concern with her, told her to keep us updated. A few days went by, another email came in, and they just got stranger and stranger as the emails rolled in. 
began to, the emails began to detail her whereabouts and things, places that she was going around campus. And so you can imagine that she was beginning to get nervous. And so we again shared our concern with her and, you know, started to take up every possible spy tactic that we knew to deploy at the time. We finally talked her into doing what we considered was a good idea at the time. I don't recommend it, but we said, okay, here's what you should do. You should arrange a meeting at a public square and we will hang in the shadows <laughs> and plot our ambush. I'm not sure what we were thinking at the time. I, I suppose, obviously, we assumed, we thought, well, we'll catch this strange, creepy man in the act of all of this stalking, and we'll teach him a lesson through violence, which is ironic when you look at me, um, <laughs> to think that I thought that that was a good idea in college. She stood waiting and waiting at the appointed time and place. He never showed. And we stood in the shadows thinking, he's on to us. He knows what we're doing. This went on for a little while. And then eventually, of course, we realized, I don't think stalkers are meant to be played with. And so we took it to the authorities, as in the campus IT department. Get us the IP address, we demanded. We want to track him down. They worked in their IT office for about an hour or so and called us back in. They had information. And I remember their faces. They had this kind of compassionate, reluctant look on their face as they explained that they had tracked down the emails and they were coming from the girl, herself. And we thought, what? This whole month of spy work is a sham. <laughs> we confronted her. Of course, we confronted her. She apologized profusely. Uh, she didn't hold back. She admitted it. Why? We asked, why would you do this? Why would you send us through this whole, you know, fabrication? She never told us. She never said. But we all knew, you know? We all knew what it was. She was afraid of moving on. She was afraid of, like, developing a new life, the uncertainty that comes with trying to figure out a new life. She was afraid of the uncertainty of not being known, maybe, of not being loved, I suppose. Those were very normal feelings. We felt betrayed. We felt humiliated. We felt angry. You know, now that I'm older, though, and I look back on that situation, I wish I could go back. I wish I could go back and say, hey, I, I'm not angry or upset, I get it. I, I know what it's like. I, I know what it's like to be afraid. I, I don't judge you. Um, I actually really get it. Suffering and fear 
these sorts of things makes us do crazy things. And myself included, by the way. We've all done crazy, weird things when we're afraid. I cheated one time on an on a English test. Guilty. I got caught. The teacher, at the time, knew my mother. And so she did the sensible thing and went and told her. My mom confronted me about the whole deal. Did you really cheat on this test, Matthew? No. <laughs> She's paranoid, Mom. And every day she's out to get me. And I was a compelling kid, so I convinced her. You know what I mean? I hope she doesn't listen to this sermon. On, on. I walked away with a secret and a healthy dose of shame. Um, and that's how life goes sometimes, you know? Again, I wish I could go back to that scene. I wish I could say, hey, I'm really sorry. This class is hard. Truth is, I don't really know what I'm doing. And I'm afraid. It doesn't excuse the behavior. It doesn't excuse the cheating. But there it is. That's, that's the reality of it. That's the truth. I say all that to say the characters in the story. You've got these religious authorities doing all sorts of weird, harassing shenanigans. And you've got the healed man who is a bit strange as well. When you look at them, what do you see? When you look at the characters in the story you just read, are they bullies? Or are they just naive? I don't know sometimes if there's a difference. Um, what we see for sure when you read it is you see ingratitude and you see an incredible lack of openness and curiosity to something amazing right in front of them. If I had to guess, I think there's an incredible amount of fear underneath motivating all of it. It's just sometimes disguised. Here's a guy laying by a pool in Jerusalem. He's been crippled for 38 years. The, the pool is full of superstition. It bubbles up every once in a while, probably from some kind of underground spring. And we don't know exactly what the situation is, but what we do know is the deeper point of this situation and the reason why John is telling it is this guy, I think, has placed all his hopes in this particular strategy, this pool. He's hoping, he's placing all of his hope in this pool, this particular strategy, and somehow getting healed. And when you understand it in those terms, you can begin to relate, you know, even if you can't relate to being crippled. We all have strategies that we use, particular strategies that we use, superstitions that we kind of lean into, whatever it is. We all have strategies of being healed. We all have strategies of feeling better. We all have different strategies of feeling enough or feeling like we can belong. We all have strategies to feel important. We all have strategies to feel loved. You know what I mean? You have diet strategies and fitness strategies because it's still in, we're still in January, right? Uh, you have career strategies, money strategies. You have romance strategies. You have family and parenting strategies you're deploying. Lots of strategies. 
We lean on them desperately to feel better. We lean on them to feel important. We lean on them to feel pure, to feel clean, to feel innocent. And oh, by the way, we have religious and moral strategies that we use. Out of compassion, Jesus approaches the guy and initiates conversation with him. He asks him a straightforward question. Do you want to be healed? He asks him. It's a strange question when you stop and think about it because imagine going to the emergency room in terrible pain, terribly sick. Finally, the ER doc walks in and says, hey, you want to get better? You might look at him or her and think, are you being, like, are you being playful with me? I don't come to the emergency room for fun. I don't know what is going on in this particular scene. You know, there's not a way to know for sure. But the guy's answer is sad. And not sad because it's wrong. It's truthful. It's sad because it's, it's really truthful. It's sad because his answer reveals how futile his strategy has been. Verse 7, he says, the sick man answered Jesus, Sir, I, I, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And then when I'm going, another guy, he steps down before me. And again, Jesus initiates all of this because I think Jesus knows how hard life has been for this guy. You know, you, sometimes people initiate the conversation with Jesus, sometimes Jesus initiates. One thing you find out every time after a little bit, because hindsight, you know, is 2020. And when you look back, you go, oh, Jesus was orchestrating the whole thing. And so he's been orchestrating this whole thing, and he knows what this guy's been through. He knows that this guy's had a hard life. He knows that he's been dealing with a lifelong story of line cutters. And it's been hard on him. And he also knows, probably, he, Jesus knows what this guy likely already knows, and that is that the pool is never going to work. He's just stuck in a habit. He's stuck in a habit to feel better, to have some kind of a hope. And Jesus' compassion on him runs deeper, I think, than just who he notices and the fact that he goes to this Bethesda area, this, this gate, this particular gate in Jerusalem, and notices this guy for some reason. And I think his compassion runs deeper just than who he notices. His compassion is also in how he draws this man out. You know, he really draws him out with the right question. Sometimes he asks people what they believe, you know. Do you believe in me? Do you believe I can do this? But he doesn't ask this guy that. He never even asks this guy what he believes. Instead, he asks this guy what he wants. And this is the funny thing about Jesus. He just, in Jesus' creative grace, he always seems to know the right question to draw you out. The right thing to ask to kind of get you thinking. He knows exactly how to initiate and begin a conversation to provoke you. He simply asks him what he wants. Are you ready for a new life, buddy? Are you ready to walk? Are you ready to deal with people? Is he ready to take on responsibility for having abilities now and agency now? Are you ready to take responsibility to have freedom? That can be scary. 
Long-suffering has a way of shackling us in bitterness, blaming and despair. You know what I mean? You ever been there? I have. I was, I remember uh, years back, um, well, not that far back, but during COVID, it was hard on a lot of pastors. A lot of pastors were quitting. We didn't know what the heck we were doing. And pastors are never good when they don't know what they're doing. And after, I don't know, a number of uh, therapy sessions, I remember clicking off of one of them, because it was on Zoom, of course. And I just remember thinking, gosh, all I do is whine. <laughs> it's just an hour-long session of me whining about how hard things are, as if that's the only story here. And I realized, it took probably a year or two, but I realized that a lot of, there's a lot of truth in recognizing where things have been difficult and maybe you've been mistreated. Or, but you can get stuck in a situation where it becomes addictive to only think of yourself in those terms. It can be terribly addictive. It's like, in some ways, like being a victim is a real thing, but then Taking up victimhood is, is a soul-crushing, addictive process that is a hopeless endeavor. And I just wonder if in some way Jesus is drawing this man out in that particular way. Here's what I know. Whenever you're stuck in a situation where you feel confused, lost, bitter, whatever it is, hopeless, whenever you're really stuck, Jesus always notices. And he always cares. He always loves but don't be surprised if he also will invite us into a deeper confrontation with ourself. Like there's this, Jesus is just so beautifully and powerfully able and gifted to, to compassionately see yourself in all of your sufferings and all the things that are so unfair in your life. But then at the same time, and love you in the midst of those, but then at the same time start to ask you questions about who you are, and what it is that you want to do now. He's so good at that. And that can be a fearful and frustrating reality to start to encounter yourself. Uh, psychoanalyst Carl Jung said that it's a terrible reality for someone to become acquainted with oneself. <laughs> A terrifying, terrible reality to, to look in the mirror and say and begin to actually see who you are and all the things that you really do and believe. The key is to be honest. To be honest with Jesus because Jesus' mercy is beyond your comprehension. Now, I don't know what this guy, the healed guy, I don't know what his, his level of awareness is and the way Jesus is drawing him out. I... Regardless, what matters is he's dealing with the right person. And because of that, Jesus says this in verse 8. He just says, get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man is healed, and he took up his bed and walked. What happens next hints at the fear and the naivete that I've been trying to talk about. The newly healed man is soon after confronted, isn't he, by the what we can deduce as the religious authorities because he's carrying his bed mat that he's been laying on. That's a moral no-no. 
for the Jews on the Sabbath day. The Sabbath day, it's the ancient day of rest prescribed in the Old Testament, the Mosaic Law. It's the day you were not permitted to do any work. It's the day that God rested in the creation story. And then later, when the Israelites are rescued out of Egypt, God gives Moses to then tell the people, here's one of the most important rules to follow right here. On the seventh day, you take a day of rest. It's very important. It's the day of rest to reflect that you don't earn your relationship status with God. You bask in it. In the same way they didn't do anything to earn their way out of Egypt, that's how you need to understand your whole life. You don't earn God's love. You receive it by grace. And you need a day to stop and think about that. You need a day to stop all of your productivity, all of your earning, all of your workaholism to stop and give yourself space to say, wait, how did I get here? The day that meant to symbolize that you... Don't rest to get love. You rest because you are loved. And remembering that, it's really difficult. But by this day and age, when you're reading this story, at this point when Jesus is on the scene, the religious people had, had let fear and naivete get in the way, and they've added extra rules just to be careful, you know? Let's put an extra fence beyond the fence. Their original source for accusing this, this man of carrying the bed mat and saying, that's unlawful, you shouldn't be doing that. Their original source was probably Jeremiah 17, 21. This is what it says. Thus says the Lord, take care for the sake of your lives and do not bear a burden. Not a bed mat. Do not bear a burden on the Sabbath day or bring it in the gates of Jerusalem. This had to do... Uh, There's another reference in Nehemiah 13 if you want to read a more detailed version of this. But really the point was people were coming in on the Sabbath day into Jerusalem and carting in their wine, their their, their grain, their their animals, all their different goods for sale. They were adding in that one more extra day of work like some people I know. You can make a little bit more money. And so they were being told to stop doing all of that. If all you do is work and you never stop and reflect, how do you know what you actually believe? That's what the Sabbath day is for. But ultimately, this is besides the point. (laughs) Really, it's besides the point. The reason John is so keen to mention this whole harassment ordeal in detail is that it highlights how fear kind of distorts our perspective. Fear kills your curiosity. That's why when you're really anxious in a particular situation, you have zero ability to to ask good questions. You're too fearful to screw up. You can be more playful, more curious, the more relaxed you are. And no one is relaxed in this scene except Jesus, of course. Why in the world, think about it, why in the world are these religious moralists more focused on the so-called rule-breaking and not the miracle Itself. (laughs) It's like how skewed, how distorted do your values need to be? 
All they want to know is, who told you to do that? You're breaking the law. Who told you to do that? Meanwhile, he's been crippled for 38 years, and now he's not. But they're not focused on that at all. Notice they never ask, how did he heal you? Did he he do some kind of incantation? What, What were the words that he spoke? They don't want to know any of that. They didn't say, hey, can we meet the guy? Can we figure out who he, like what's going on inside of him? No, no, no. They're just, they're just the moral police. They don't get far with the guy <laughs> because apparently he doesn't even know Jesus' name. He never bothered to stop and ask. He gets healed after 38 years being crippled and he didn't even ask Jesus' name. And Jesus isn't even mad about it. The good news is that the guy does find out who Jesus is, doesn't he? And it's funny. Where's it at? It's at the temple, the church. The same place a lot of us go when we're trying to get a fresh start, right? You want to change? You want to figure out how to get healed? You go to church and you start finding out about this person named Jesus. Well, that's what happened to this guy. And once again, Jesus confronts him. Verse 14, afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Oh, look, you're well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Now, wait a second. So what is going on? Is Jesus saying that this guy's sin got him in the crippled situation that he's in? Not necessarily. I don't know. I really don't know. No one knows. I'd say this. It's never wise to make that assumption. In John chapter 9, you'll actually come across a story, a quick little story, where Jesus and the disciples are walking along and they see a blind guy. And they go to Jesus and they say, Jesus, look at this guy. Did he sin, did his sin, or did his parents' sin cause him to be blind? And Jesus looks at them and says, neither. Moving on. So, It's never good to make that connection. The deeper point is here this. The deeper point is, look, you're healed. Look at you. You are better. You are well. You have freedom. You have life. Now go live in light of it. That's what he's saying. Don't live to get healed. Live in such a way as if you already are. In other words... In Jesus' world, we don't need to change to get healed. We change after we start to recognize we're healed freely. That's the order of change. But here's the thing, you know, it's kind of funny how it seems like change is really slow, isn't it? Uh, It seems to be slow in this scene. What's telling is right after the healed man meets Jesus in the church building... What's the next thing that you read? Not that he threw a feast with all his friends and had a Bible study. It says, verse 15, the man went away right after this and he told the Jews it was Jesus who healed him. It's like, what a tattletale. (laughs) And this is why the Jews are persecuting Jesus because he's doing these things on the Sabbath. So, is the healed guy backstabbing Jesus on purpose? Like, 
The guy that just healed you after 38 years and you're going to stab him in the back like that? Is that what's happening? Or is he just naive, you know? It really all depends on how you hear the tone, you know? Is he, is he going to the back to the authorities saying, oh, hey, guys, guys, I, I found him. His name's Jesus, right? Is that? I don't know what he's doing. I'm not sure. But either way, it shows that he has a long ways to go, right? He still has a lot of maturing. He still has a lot of changing. Still, he needs to grow a ton of in, his, in, his, in his awareness <laughs> and his courage. When I'm at restaurants and I'm praying before the meal, because sometimes Christians do that sort of a thing, I get so nervous when the waiter shows up in the middle of the prayer. I really do. True, true story. I get so nervous. Just once, just once, I would like the, the waiter to come to the table in the middle of my prayer and just set the food down quietly and walk away. But instead, they're always so respectful. You know what I mean? They're always so respectful. They always come up and they realize you're praying and then they step back, you know, and they wait, which then I get anxious because they're waiting on me. And so then I rush through my prayer, you know, and I just try to end it. Am I backstabbing? Am I ashamed of Jesus? Or am I just still naive, struggling, fearful, afraid of what people think? It's hard to say. Whatever the case is with this guy, Jesus leverages the scene to state that not only is he not bothered by any so-called rule-breaking, he explains himself by identifying himself with God, which just further infuriates the religious leaders, right? The religious leaders know, of course, that it's been long historical you know, fact for them that, yes, while on the seventh day we rest, God doesn't need to do that. He, uphold, he upholds the universe. God doesn't need to rest. And that's what Jesus is doing. Jesus is just simply saying, you guys know how God doesn't rest, right? He just works all the time, and that's fine because he's God. He's allowed to do that. And they're like, yeah, that's, you know, they're thinking, yeah, that's right, that's right. And he's like, yeah, me too. He, of course, they pick up what he's laying down, you know. Yeah, I'm God. And they don't like that. On one level, the story is just a straightforward healing story, isn't it? On one level. It's a straightforward healing story, once again, that teaches us that Jesus has the power and he has the compassion to heal you because he's God in the flesh. He can do that. But on another and not so obvious level, I think that the story is another reminder that Jesus heals by grace, not by merit. In other words, salvation, deliverance from sin, from death, forgiveness, a better future, a new future, is a gift from God. I think on another level, that's what the story teaches. But what really interests me just as much here isn't just that the gift of salvation, by, that it's by grace, but what interests me is, man, how slow it is to understand or to trust in. Like how reluctant we are to trust in a salvation by grace. You say you like it, you say you believe it, but man, it's really hard to trust for humans. 
for ordinary people, whether you've been in the church a long time, like the religious authorities have been, or maybe you're new to the church like the healed guy. For both parties in this scene, they're both afraid of trusting fully and banking on a salvation by grace. It's difficult. Why doesn't the healed guy seem more loyal? Why doesn't he seem more protective of Jesus? More grateful to Jesus for what he's done? Why doesn't he do that? And why don't the religious moralists reimagine how they see the rules that they've constructed and become open to the good news right in front of them? Why? I mean, whether we like to admit it or not, people just don't reform old habits and old ways of thinking overnight. It's a slow kind of transformation, if they transform at all. This healed guy has spent 38 years dealing with bullies, and being cast aside. 38 years. Can you imagine? I can imagine that when all of a sudden he's walking around and he's going into the church building and religious authorities are approaching him and questioning him, I can imagine that he's going to fearfully struggle with that situation. That he's going to be anxious and he's going to be scared and he's going to cave under the pressure of what to do. And while we so easily and love to judge the Jewish moralists and all the stories of the Bible, understand that when you have spent your whole life, you've cultivated a whole life around following the rules, being a good person so that God will love you and accept you. When you've spent your whole life around that kind of a story, when you've cultivated a whole life around religious disciplines and someone comes along and seemingly challenges them and says, that's not going to save you. That's not enough. That's not going to be good enough. You're going to get afraid. You're going to say, well, I've spent my whole life doing this. I've spent my whole life reading my Bible this way. I've spent my whole life following these particular rules and now you're telling me that they don't save me? Nope. Don't get me wrong, I'm not defending them, right? I'm just simply relating to them for the sake of my good and your good. I don't think that these kind of characters were written into our Bibles so that we can simply be disgusted with them. I think these kind of characters were written into the Bible so that we can relate to them and say, oh, that's me. I do that. And yet Jesus is kind to them. Like the healed man, I too, very often, I too find it safer to belong to a community or a social circle more than I like to be faithful sometimes. Like the moralists in the story, I too find it safer sometimes to focus on the rules more than the relationship of grace. The rules are really safe. They make me feel good about myself too especially when I'm following them, until I don't. And then I just feel ashamed. Like both of the characters, the healed man and the moralist, like both of them, I too find the illusion of control <laughs> more comforting than the simple act of contrition and confession. Just admitting, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm struggling. I think... 
that this story encourages you with the profound hope that Jesus truly does plan to save by grace. That's what he wants to do. That's what he's going to do. It's what he plans to do. But I think it equally challenges you with how reluctant we are to believe in that. That you're reluctant to believe in it. I'm reluctant to believe in that. And we are very slow in being shaped by it. It takes a lot of time. Because while Jesus is the best news that we've ever heard, if you truly hear it, what he's offering is wonderful news. But allowing him to crush your fear and fill you up with faith and love is terribly difficult. And I say all that not to hinder you, but to sober you up and to keep you going. Don't give up, friends. Don't give up on believing in a salvation by grace. Stick with it for the long haul. It's the only thing that works. Laying by the pool doesn't. Whatever your strategy you're deploying isn't going to work. And something tells me deep inside you, you know that. You know that. The dieting, the money, the family, the parenting, the romance, the social media platform, the stock portfolio, the fitness, I don't know, whatever strategy you like to use, you know it isn't going to work. And neither is your religious rule-following disciplines. They're not going to work either. Throwing up your hands and saying, I'll never get healed on my own. That will work when you look to Jesus. You know, this whole series, Believe, it's a series of showing us that Jesus will heal you in spite of never doing anything grand or worthy. <laughs> and you should believe in that. And John wrote about seven incidences that highlight this. Seven signs that point that out. Seven. Seven. And at the end of the book, he'll tell you, well, there's a whole lot more, but, you know, my publisher said to keep it short. So he only includes seven. Now, my thing is this. If we were keen on getting it, if we were so great on the uptake, he would have just included one. But something tells me that John understands that we need repetition. You need to be told over and over and over and over again that it's salvation by grace, not by works. Or you won't get it. You don't want to trust in it. And something tells me that John knows how rigid, stubborn, and fearful our minds can be about change. We don't like the idea of opening up to something new. We get defensive and fearful about change. And ultimately... He knows how weak we are at the process of change unless we just begin to confess how we don't. I'm not changing, Lord, help me. The theologian Augustine wrote, to desire the aid of grace is the beginning of grace. I love that. And the philosopher James K. Smith reflected on what Augustine said. And he wrote this, if you come to the end of yourself and wonder if there's help and are surprised to find yourself at times hoping for a grace from beyond, 
it's a sign that grace is already at work. Keep asking. You don't have to believe in order to ask. Here's the thing. You can ask for help believing too. The desire for grace is the first grace. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was with his disciples, and things were about to get terribly, terribly sad for Jesus, but he still has the ability, he still has the courage, the fortitude to sit with them in kindness and love and remind them of what he's doing. And he took the bread and he, he broke it after giving thanks, and he, he said, this is my body broken for you. And he took the cup of blood and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant, the promise, the promise my love, my commitment to you, that I'm never going to leave you, that I'm never going to forsake you, that I'm going to forgive you, that I'm going to that I'm going to save you, that I'm going to do all of that. And he's going to do it on the cross and he's going to die and he's going to take it all. He's going to absorb all the pain, all the hurts, all the suffering, all the slowness of change in my life and in your life. He's going to take it all. And we're simply told to to constantly gather together and take part in it and remember and reflect on that. And so take the time that you need this morning. Think about the things, the characters in the story and how you might relate to them. If you're a Christian this morning, whether you're a member of this church or not, you're invited to this station or this station and take part. And if you're not a Christian, man, I'm so glad you're here. And I hope you continue to ask questions and I can hope that you continue to open up to what uh, we're talking about here. If you need prayer, we'll be in the prayer room off to the side. And oh, I should mention too that we still are praying on Wednesday mornings if you want to come in. At 6.30 in the morning, we meet here and we pray for 30 minutes. That might be good. Actually, I know it would be good for you. Let us pray together. Father, your word says that you are a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek you. You have not forsaken those who seek you. We seek you now, Lord. We call out to you. Whatever we're burdened with, whatever we're carrying this morning, allow us to hand it off to you, whether that be sins or just things that we're suffering, things that are our fault and things that are not our fault, things that hold us back, keep us stuck. May we hand those off to you today. Thank you for your son Jesus. Thank you for the work that he's done in my place. Thank you for being so patient with me as I'm slow. It's in Jesus' name that we always pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. Learn more about our church and support by giving to the Mission of the Oaks at www.theoakscommunitychurch.org.